You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jerry, here we are inside the Legends Room at Safeco Field, episode 19 of The Wheelhouse. Man, so many good things to talk about for the Mariners. Uh, and we will be speaking about uh, Ichiro, we'll be talking pitching staff. But first, Jerry, did your heart break like mine when Jed Lowry fouled off the ninth pitch of the first inning against James Paxton? Jerry, an immaculate inning almost happened. And I could not help but think of you as it was. Now, now are you just saying this? Or I'm, not, I'm not just saying it. We were actually in, in the box. We're watching the game. Four or five of us are sitting there. Your name did happen to come up when the immaculate inning was in progress. The immaculate inning that wasn't. Wasn't the first, and I don't suspect it will be the last time that Jed Lowry breaks my heart this year. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but but it was fascinating to watch the, the I thought it was it was coming down and it was just one pitch which was even more fascinating just watching somebody pummel one pitch by major league hitters like that but we were that close. Well, I'm I'm happy that my brand has been built enough in your suite, Jerry, that people automatically uh, connect me to immaculate inning uh, because the look on my face and my body when he fouled that pitch off, Blowers looked at me just like. You're pathetic. <laughs> we all know it. Do you want to say something? Uh, that was very disappointing. In fact, I will say that after the first strike of the second batter of that inning, I got in talk back and I said, hey, Felix, Felix has the only immaculate inning, right? Can we confirm this? Because th- this is going to happen. So I was, my heart was broken. But You think that when they throw strike one. Oh, it's strike one, no. man. It's, it's, if it's a guy who can do it, it's like, all right, let's get, we got the prep. Let's get the graphics going. Let's be ready for this. Um, <laughs> But hey, while we're talking about it, and a lot to get to, as I mentioned, uh, James Paxton, that is one for the history book. 16 strikeouts. I mean, you are in categories of Randy Johnson at this point for James Paxton. What did you make of what he did? I thought it was fascinating. First off, in, in the three seasons now that I've been with the Mariners, and more than that, that I've watched James pitch, best I've ever seen James Paxton. Uh also happens to have been the, the highest single-game spin rates that James has ever posted. So really? there's that. And I, what I was fascinated by, I've seen a lot of high strikeout games, including Randy Johnson, once upon a time. I've, I've never seen a 20-strikeout game, so to speak, but I've seen the 16s. I've seen up to 18. Uh, that was the single most dominant outing I've ever seen from a pitcher at the major league level. And I told Pax this. Because it, the, the ability to stand there and throw high fastball after high fastball by major league hitters and, and seemingly not have to check down to another pitch. Uh, the immaculate inning with just fastball after fastball at, at letter high would have been phenomenal to watch. It was, and it was in its, in its natural form. You don't really see that. Baseball players, current big league players, hit fastballs. That's what they do. And, and to be so exceptional – even if for just a night, but I think Pax has this in his DNA, to stand out there and, and just rush one pitch by great hitters. Right now, in just about any metric, the Oakland A's are, are as dangerous or more than any team in the American League. Highest OPS plus in the league, WRC plus. They're they a very good offensive team, and, and, and he made it look different than that. 
One thing I found interesting, his post-game comments, was when he mentioned that he stopped trying to be so fine, which we hear pitchers talk about this from time to time, but pitchers who have the stuff like James has, I mean, to get too nitpicky with what you want to do seems kind of crazy, but it's easier said than done, I realize. What did you make of his comments saying that after the game? It makes all the sense in the world to me. And if you watch James, maybe the, the greatest example was his outing in Texas. You know, he was he – was, in trying to be fine, you're giving the hitter too much credit. And the Texas Rangers, I, for as many, we had 25 fastball swing-throughs versus Oakland two nights ago. In Texas, there may have been a greater number of that foul balls on fastballs that were really located quite well. And I think part of the reason why there's so many uh, protective or foul ball type swings is that is that you're not you're not maximizing the location on your pitches the way you could and you're not operating from a pitcher's count you know it's not 0-2-1-2 every time they're fouling that ball off a lot of times it's 3-2-2-2 and you're extending counts and driving pitch counts instead of just attacking early and finishing them off Pax probably doesn't need to throw his breaking ball 50% of the time he doesn't need to operate on the edges and he doesn't need to trick them you know Get out there and rush the mid to upper 90s fastball. You know, use the middle of the plate, elevate at the top of the zone, and now you're freeing up a, a different element, and that cutter and curveball come into play. And as we saw two nights ago against Oakland, it really enhanced the quality of those pitches like we haven't seen to this point this year. Are you When you say the breaking ball half the time, are you considering the slider-cutter part of that mix? Sure. Okay. You know, it, it, and I guess if you call it a cutter, I guess right. it's a form of fastball. If you I have, call it a slider, depending on who I talk ball. to, I call it something different. Yeah. Here I call it a cutter now. It's Jerry's podcast. Yeah, it's a cutter. <laughs> I, and the reason I call it a cutter is because James called it a cutter. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Um, you know, along the lines, I remember when James first got to the Mariners, right? And it was this high, over-the-top delivery, right? And it was... 95 96 just at the knees pounding it all night long now we're seeing him obviously elevate get up in the strike zone with today's hitters doing what they are jerry everybody's got the upper cup swing is the high fastball now the most in vogue pitch in baseball i think so you know there's now i would say for most of the last 10 15 years it's been some combination of cutter or change up that right. was the most in the cut, oh, the cutter for sure, oh, right? Everybody cutter, had that. Try man. That's right. Uh, Pax, right now with the high fastball, we've got a couple other guys. Nick Vincent, you know, actually falls into the category of both high fastball and cutter. But uh, the the high fastball to offset the 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 swing changes, the plane changes, or the desire to kind of elevate and celebrate on the part of the major league hitter. That's what they How do. How did you come up with that? Elevate uh, and celebrate? There's, I, I would love to take credit for that, but our analytics group did. And, really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 Is this a Jesse Smith creation? Uh, yes, and we have a T-shirt. To, to If you'd like one, I can grab you one after the podcast. It's a, I'm a child's medium. Yes, I would. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, the major league hitter, more often than not, is looking to lift. They want to hit the ball in the air, and they're being celebrated if they do. So if, if at the end of the day you can get it just above the point of comfort, now you're getting pop-ups and misses. It, it's really hard to hit the kind of velocity that James Paxton can produce at the top of the strike zone or above, like we saw the, the night before last. You don't even need 97 to do that. You can do it at 87 if it's well-located. And you know, a mistake that a lot of pitchers will make, and, and I remind my son of this on occasion, you don't really need to direct the high fastball in and out as frequently as you think. 
more often than not, it's get it over the center part of the plate and just elevate. And if you get it over the letters, that shoulder blade high, it's really hard to get on top of a, a fastball and, and drive it like on a line when, when it's coming in at that velocity. And frankly, if you think about it, try to take an angle, the angle of a bat, and hit a ball that's at that level, it's, it's going straight up. So unless you are Jed Lowry and can magically hit them both 400 feet in the air and 400 feet away from home plate, that is, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not common to be able to do that. Well, it was a magnificent performance from James Paxton. You've already brought up spin rate. We'll be talking more spin rate a little bit later here in the podcast today. But we'd like to get to the really the news of the homestand for the Mariners, and that surrounds Ichiro, of course. By now, we're recording this on Friday before Game 1 against the Angels. I think everyone has a very clear understanding as to kind of what's going on with Ichiro transitioning more to an advisory role, although he will still we'll see him in the cage for BP and, and the like. Uh, but I think I'm more curious, Jerry, about – any more light that you can shed on the behind-the-scenes talk with Ichiro? Because obviously this is a, a fascinating move and an, an unprecedented move, which is hard to imagine something's unprecedented in a game that dates back to the Civil War, but you guys have managed to do it. Congratulations. Ah, thank you. <laughs> and, and pretty cool to be a part Absolutely. of it, frankly. You know, it's a, the thing I'm happiest about is when we started this process with Ichiro, and, and, and I'll say this, this process started – maybe as early as October of 2017 when I first got a phone call from John Boggs asking me of our interest in Ichiro. You know, and my answer at that time was I, I, I love Ichiro. I love the career he's had and certainly respect him for, for all that he's done for the Mariners. Just didn't naturally fit on our roster. And, oh, lo and behold, once we acquired D. Gordon, we've got Gam, we've got Mitch Haniger, we've got Guillermo, and – and we get into spring training and we lose Ben Gamble. And uh, so now we need what we believe is a short to medium-term fit. And there really was an opportunity to re-engage with Ichiro. And at that time when we sat down with him, we clearly it was understood that we wanted Guillermo and Ben to play and, and that eventually that would be the case. And uh, as I said to Ichiro and to, to John at the time, I'm not stupid. If Ichiro goes out and hits 350 for April, then he'll hit in May too. You know, that's the idea. But, you know, we did want to make sure that we were addressing our desire to get the younger guys the at-bats that they need. Um, You know, Ben went down. We anticipated him being out until the first week or close to middle of May. And Ben was a quick healer. So we had to throw in an overdrive in making this decision with Ichi. Obviously, it it wasn't – quite what we were hoping it to be on the field but the impact that he made in our clubhouse and the impact that he made by returning to this organization and what we think he provides not just the 2018 team but the teams that come after this just a that long what we hope is forever uh relationship between one of the organization's great players really one of the the, the globe's great players and and the organization that he has chosen to to be a part of i think it means something bigger than the game so to speak and and i'm thrilled he's decided to stick around i i could wax on i have been thoroughly impressed by how he's handled himself his regimen his discipline to be doing what he's doing at 44 years old is phenomenal can I tell you, Jerry, first road trip of the season, right, we begin in San Francisco, and we get off the bus at the hotel, and a few of us are riding up to our rooms in the elevator, right? And each row walks on to our elevator. It's a couple of us. I think uh, Brad Adam was in there, myself, maybe Shannon Dreher, 
And here's Ichi. And he has with him his bat. And I got to tell you, Jerry, I've been on a lot of elevators with a lot of big leaguers. They've never had any equipment with them. And we just kind of say, hey, what's up? Uh, What's up with the bat? And he says, to swing in my room. Oh, okay. of course. Yes, yes. You're sweet of the Four Seasons in San Francisco. This makes perfect sense. But that's Ichiro. Did it glow? Was the back glowing? <laughs> <laughs> There's, it is Ichiro. And I, I'll say this. You know, we, once, we had, had, once we signed Ichiro, he came on board, and we did have a variety of scenarios that when it was time, whether that be at year's end or, or as it works out on May 3rd, when it was time to transition, that we had a variety of different potential outcomes, one of which obviously we, we exercised yesterday as a group. And we sat down on Monday, which was the off day coming out of what I think was a great road trip, and before this homestand began. And John Stanton and I spoke with Ichiro and, and his translator, Alan Turner, and his agent, John Boggs. And, and we, all, we had a collective discussion about what we wanted out of this. And, and uh, you know, Ichiro came to that meeting in shorts and a T-shirt, uh, the, the, the the Mariners t-shirt with Mariners oh, shirt. Oh, I, I was really hoping for wearing some Wearing batting gloves. Wearing batting gloves. No. Yeah. And whereas you might think this was you know, the, the, the 2018 version of Michael Jackson <laughs> r- reporting to a meeting with, with uh, upper management, not at all the case. On his off day, Ichiro decided to come in and get, a, get some swings in the cage before the, the, the big meeting. And uh, I laughed when I saw him. I, I, <laughs> and I, but it, it is so, it's so apropos of Ichiro. And that's, that's kind of who he is and what he's about. And, and we sat for an hour, hour and a half, and we discussed the future, why he wanted to be back here with the Mariners, why we wanted him to be a part of what we were doing moving forward. And it became very clear to everybody that this was the right outcome. Uh, we'll call it option A. It, we, this is what we all wanted, was a long-term relationship with a great player and not to shut the door on, on his chance of coming out and playing again. Uh, I joked around with him. I asked him, have you ever heard of Minnie Minoso? And then I listened for about five minutes to him trying to say Mini Minoso. He, <laughs> <laughs> he did not naturally know Mini. And uh, I explained the Mini Minoso story. And, and uh, you know, Alan Turner did, did, did not have a history with Mini. John Boggs knew. How and old was Mini when he played his last game? I believe he was 54 years old when he took his last at bat in 1980 and uh, played in five decades. So by my estimation, if Ichi comes back and suits up for the Mariners at some point in 2020 and then maybe again as a 56-year-old in 2030, you know, I can't promise that'll happen, but, you know, why not? It'll be like our Where's Waldo. Where's Ichi going to play this year? Incredible stuff. Well, there's, uh, we want to talk a little bit about the series coming up for the Mariners that starts tonight, a big series, an exciting series against the Angels. But I've kind of got a, just a grab bag of topics that I want to go over with you. First of all, uh, man, every night, Jerry, we're talking about D. Gordon, right? Every night we're talking about D. Gordon, what he's doing at the plate, what he's doing on the base paths, in the outfield. And I know you guys have been very aware since the start of spring training about the wear and tear on D's legs relative to what he's been used to at second base, right? Even before that at shortstop. Can you tell us a little bit about how you are tracking? Uh, this is the high-level Fitbit scenario in Major League Baseball, D. Gordon, and what's going on with his lower half? Because this is, uh, he's burning more calories this year than he ever has before. 
Yes, and and D doesn't have too many calories to give. <laughs> you know, he's a he's had a phenomenal start to his Mariners career. His first thirty games have been super high impact. You know, I, last night we're sitting there watching where I just think he took over a major league game. It it takes a very special player to be able to take over a major league game, and, and I felt like last night there were times where he didn't even notice there was somebody else on the field because of what he was doing, and and uh, and and that is running the bases, that's stealing bases, that's that's creating distraction that benefits the hitter on the other side, and what he does last night running down balls in the gap twice pressed up against the wall. He's covering a lot of ground over the course of a game. So much different than when he was first brought up as a shortstop or later in his, in his salad days as a gold glove second baseman. Obviously, we've moved him to a position where there's a lot more room to cover. He's especially with a fly ball oriented pitching staff. He's getting a lot more action every day. And while he's getting something between five and 50 hits a week, it seems, he's, he's running the bases a lot. So. You know, while while we don't naturally have a Fitbit attached to him, we do have a Fitbit floating in our orbit. You know, as Major League Baseball, uh, Statcast provides satellite coverage of our games, and we're trying to presently extrapolate the data from Statcast that would allow us to track how much distance D is covering in a given game. And, and once we're able to take that data and compare it to itself, it's it. it, it over time, we can better determine when we might need to ease off the gas on D, when he might need a break, and and or when is the most logical time to try to schedule an off day. Because it's awfully tough to expect that he's going to go out there and play or start 162 and, and be ready to go play in the postseason as well after playing on the infield. Even just something as subtle as how much longer it is for him to run from the dugout to take his position in center field and come back. I don't know if you've if you've noticed this about D. He doesn't trot to his position. I mean, he's he's moving. I would be huffing and puffing if I was just trying to keep up with with D running out to play center. So you know, it is something that we've started to to I guess play around with. Can the satellite data provide us with some type of information that helps us? to manage the season, and not just for D, but for Mitch, for Guillermo, for Ben, everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a real quality tool. Let's find out how, really how powerful it is. Now, I, I have a hard time believing that baseball doesn't connect with young fans when a general manager says, we're going to look at the satellite data and see what it can tell us. I mean, this is like the coolest thing that you could ever say about a, about a player, but I'm glad that the, the StatCast information is there and you guys can try to break it down. When... When we saw D have five hits the other day, Jerry, I'm going to ballpark it. He had five hits, and he saw, I'm going to say, 11 or 12 pitches. I mean, what is it about D that allows him to go up there and be so aggressive from the very start of the game and not only be aggressive but get three to five hits a night out of it? And all different types of hits. I mean, we've seen low screaming line drives into gaps. We've seen the lofty long homer against Cleveland. You know, we've seen the the reach into the the right hand hitters batter's box, flip a blooper to right field, and turn it into a double. Uh, and we've seen a variety of infield hits of all different shapes and sizes, from bunts to to just moving a ball to the left side and beating the shortstop to the to the bag, so to speak. He's really been phenomenal, and he's got great hands. It's a, so when you take great hands and couple them with what I would define as on the scouting scale of 20 to 80, 80 running speed with great hands, it's, it's, it, he's 
two steps out of the box before the ball is even moving toward a defender. And, you know, if you bobble the ball, if you pick it up and can't get it out of your glove, or if you take one step in the wrong direction to, to take a route to, to make a play, he's going to beat you to the bag. And, and we've seen it over and over and over now for 30 games. And, you know, that's how you win batting titles is, is putting balls in play, running hard to first base every time, and he creates action. Uh, he's not waiting long to do it. No. You know? And he made that very clear when he first joined the Mariners. Like, you think I'm standing up there to walk? No, that's not my game. Uh, but, you know, our our game or D's game is about putting the ball in play and getting hits and, and creating action, and he's doing it. And, and he has a history of doing it. He has a history as, as something in the neighborhood of a 70-scale hitter, so a 300 hitter in this league who has on two occasions thrown up 200-plus hits, and, and it sure looks like he's on that path again. Mike and I have talked a couple of times already this year, and we tied it in with D, what he did back in 2015 when he was hitting 400, roughly 35 games into the season for the Marlins. We kind of went back and forth on the air. Is it possible in today's era of baseball, Jerry, do you think for a player to hit 400 at the end of the season? Be awfully hard with the defensive shifts such as they work right now. Now, D is is, he's almost an anti-shift player. You can't shift him. Uh, because wherever you move, he's just going to hit it in the other spot. He does have good bat control, and he has good hands. So if there is a type of player that can do it, I would assume it to be this type of player who has contact skill, who has bat control, and who has AD speed. I don't know that you're ever going to see a 400 hitter again because of the way defenses shift, because of the the information we have that allows us to position them appropriately, and because of the physical stuff that's that's coming out of a pitcher's hand now. Uh, we, we, I was I was on the phone with a former teammate uh, the other day, and, and we were kind of laughing and, and joking about what pitchers do today. You know, in the in the early 90s, if you threw 92, 93 miles an hour, it was firm. You know, now 92, 93 is like Fleming Baez before the game. Flipping Enjoy DP. the PCL. It's exactly. I mean, it's a – and I don't want to downsell. We still count 92, 93 as a 60 fastball on a scale. But it is uh, – and depending on what you can do in terms of movement or location, that can be a very effective pitch. But it's almost like when we were talking, talking in previous episodes about spin rate – you want to be high or low, you know, get to that 94, 96, 98 zone. Or if you can get under hitting speed, you know, if, if there, there is a, an element of surprise or deception involved with throwing below hitting speed. The Jared Weaver? Uh, it's Jared Weaver. It's Wade LeBlanc, you know. I mean, Wade LeBlanc, LeVon Hernandez in his, in his salad days, where they could go out there and they can create and craft and locate and deceive using fastballs that are probably not significantly harder than what you might see uh, coming out of a drafted high school player, a 16-year-old you sign in the Dominican, you know, or a game you might pick up anywhere in the, in the area uh, at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but, but they're able to do a lot with the ball, and, and it's pretty phenomenal. But you know, all of those things together create, to me, a lesser likelihood that you're ever going to see 400 hitters. There's, just, there's too many things going against the hitter in today's game. You bring up spin rate. We, uh, excuse me, not Brian, but Mike and I had a great chat with Brian DeLunas, Mariners' new bullpen coach, when we were on the road, and the last road trip for the Mariners. And first of all, we we talked to Brian. He was very gracious with his time. We talked to him for nearly forty-five minutes. And Jerry, we could tell 
Uh, we are just scratching the surface talking pitching with Brian. I mean, what a fantastic guy and a wealth of knowledge. But one of the things that he said to us that Mike and I both, when we walked away, we thought, well, this is we've never heard this before. He was talking about Nicasio and how Nicasio throws such a heavy ball, right? We hear that phrase from time to time, I throw such a heavy, heavy ball. And he said that's because he's a low spin rate guy. And Mike and I never would have thought to equate heavy ball, low spin rate, can you tell us why that is? You know, and, and I mentioned this it, uh, as sinker ballers. And Juan is not a sinker baller. Juan does have a lower spin rate, and we knew that when we signed him. Uh, but generally speaking, you want to be on one of the poles. You, you want to have either an extremely high spin rate or an extremely low spin rate. You don't necessarily want to be caught in the middle. As a player, I was a sinker baller. I had a very low spin rate, although they weren't tracking it at the time. Uh, the same could be said of... Derek Lowe, you know, as a, as a as sinker ball pitcher. You know, Juan has the extraordinary, I guess, elements of being a low spin rate guy who pitches primarily with a four-seam fastball, and he can rush it at the top of the zone. It, that's very unusual. He's not, Juan's not a particularly fast arm pitcher, but when the ball comes out of his hand, it's almost if you think about, you know, a, a, the old catapult, the medieval catapult. Juan has a longer arm action. It's not moving at, you know, at Edwin Diaz-type arm speed. And when the ball comes out of his hand, his fingers are so long that there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of snap when he gets off on the end of the, the ball. You know, Eddie looks like he's just cracking a whip. Juan looks like you're snapping a, a catapult. And as the ball gets closer to home plate, the, it, the gravitational pull of all pitches is going to – it's going down. You just don't realize it's going down. Spin rate keeps the ball airborne for longer and, and gives, you, gives you that what appears to be that, that ride or that rush at the top of the zone. Juan's ball is naturally heavy and starts to fall almost immediately, but he's got enough velocity and his arms are so long that the, the release is right on top of a hitter. So though he's throwing primarily straight four-seam fastballs at a very low spin or a lower spin rate, he's able to rush four-seam fastballs by a hitter. Most of the time, the guys with the low spin rates are super sinker-oriented. And, and it, Juan is very unusual for, for his skill set, which I think Bill James, you know, the, the great baseball mind, really. Sure. I, Bill James once said that a player's uniqueness often defines his value. And Juan's very unique. And, and if you find someone with unique skill sets, you know, Put him in a position to, to to be valuable, and hopefully that's what we've done. So he loves Pat Fendetti. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's unique. He is unique. That very much defined his value. You bring up Edwin Diaz, and I want to ask you something that has – I was really surprised this was floating around. The Mariners obviously had a disappointing loss on the Paxton 16 strikeout night. Edwin Diaz comes on in the ninth inning in a tied game, and I was really surprised, Jerry, uh, and I was asked about it as well the following day, the amount of people who were kind of going, oh boy, I don't know, I don't, I don't like this decision here. Closer, ninth inning, tied game, Diaz pitching now, I don't like that. And I, I was really blown away by it um, because, well, for a lot of reasons. First of all, he's your best reliever. It's a tie game. He gets through that inning. Bottom of the ninth comes up, and the way that this lineup is constructed presently, especially for the Mariners. One through nine, it doesn't matter. Any of those guys can win a game for you and pop one out. But I am curious, 
from your baseball strategy perspective, and I know you and Scott are in line with these types of things, uh, when is it a good idea to bring your closer in in a non-safe situation, and was that a total no-brainer to bring Edwin in in that particular situation in a home game that's tied in the ninth inning? I, I think the answer to the question is closer, ninth inning, home game, tie game is virtually a 100% of the time as long as the, the pitcher has enough rest. You don't want to bring a guy in for his fifth straight day when he's when he's pitching in the tie game in the ninth inning. But Edwin Diaz is the reliever that gives us the best chance to get the next three hitters out, period. And we're in a tie game with, with a lineup sitting on the sideline that has a chance to win the game with one swing. And, you know, Edwin was absolutely the right call. I, Blow asked me about it at the at the batting cage yesterday. He said, is there some newfangled, uh, you know, baseball plan that, that, you know, you don't use your closer in a tie game at home? I said, no. Actually, most of the new, more, uh, let's say, a modern approach to bullpen usage would be in, in the same game the Oakland A's bringing Blake Trinan in for a multi-inning outing in a tie game and understanding that they probably put him in a position where he wasn't going to be able to pitch the next day, they were taking the opportunity in a tie game to play the odds. We have a chance to win this game. Blake Trinan gives us the best chance to make it happen. And that would be the more common usage. I do think that when you're on the road, there is always going to be a hesitation if you don't have the lead particularly if you have a thinner bullpen. So if you used, let's say, for instance, Juan Nicasio to throw the eighth inning and Juan gives up the two-run homer to tie the game and you bring Eddie in, I think there's a scenario. Let's say we're playing the Houston Astros and you've got Springer, Correa, Altuve coming up the following inning. You probably do use Edwin Diaz. You know, it might be a circumstance where if you're facing seven, eight, and nine and it's two left-hand hitters in three, that you, you take a run and you throw James Pazos in that scenario and, and play the odds, so to speak. So there's a little bit of gamesmanship. There's a little bit of, of information or data management. But the the standard tried and true, if you're playing a, a home game and you are tied in the ninth inning and the reliever is generally rested, use them. Colin, can we cut this up for a PSA and then we'll just, we'll just blast this out? I, I I'm glad you cleared this up because I was I was very surprised by how many people were uh, were bringing this up the other day. Let's let's look ahead now to tonight and this weekend, Jerry. Uh, first of all, the weather looks to be very good the next couple of days here at Safeco Field. Angels coming to town. Mariners are just neck and neck with them and the Astros for the top spot in the division. Uh, it's pretty fun the second month of the season to be saying this feels like a big series for the Mariners. It does at a time, frankly, where a lot of teams that the we'll call it the haves in the league, you know, the teams that have been riding near the top of the standings, are all playing pretty critical matchups. You know, I think obviously we're playing the Angels, the Astros. Meanwhile, play the Diamondbacks. I think the Yankees tee up with the Indians. It's a it's an interesting time for the teams at the top of the standings in the American League, and we're thrilled to be involved in the conversation. So. It's, it's cool to play games that mean something in May. Uh, and we can sit here and, and say that every win matters, and it does. I'm thrilled that we've banked 18 of them. But it's also a lot of fun, on a, really on a great weather weekend, to play a team that you're, that you're battling, that you're neck and neck with. And, and that really is a very good matchup. And, and we're going to have to figure out you know, it, over these next three days 
how to how to not use the same three relievers every night and still win <laughs> games. But it's uh you know we've we've really rested hard on that bullpen and they've done a great job for us. And you know here over the last seven or ten days the the starting rotation has been quite good under the radar. They've been quite good and really happy with the way our pitching staff has come together. And over these next three days, I think it's going to be exciting for them, you know, with, with, with Mike Leak, with Marco, with Felix, to tee it up this weekend and, and hopefully get us into that sixth, seventh inning and, and give us a chance. I think it's time to get to some listener interaction. And normally this is when we throw out the email address, thewheelhouse at mariners.com, but I'm going to throw the most wicked curveball at O'Keefe right we now. We have an email address? Okay. This is awesome. Do you hear this? Do you hear this? This is the shuffling of fan mail, Colin. Jerry, our podcast got an actual mailing in through the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, Ad- addressed to Francis uh, Ford O'Keefe? Or, uh, obviously addressed to me. Yeah, uh, of course. Who else? Who else? Would it I, mean, I guess they figured if they wrote to the GM, it would probably get lost in the shuffle. Uh, this is the only thing I'm getting all month. Um yeah, this is. I a, get blistering, blistering fan mail on crazy things, and some not so. On why the closer came in in a tied game at home in the ninth inning. Yes, yeah, and among many other things. Yeah. Well, this is. Uh, we'd like to say hello to James in California, who wrote a, a handwritten thank you note, and he wanted to write a. This is a direct quote: "A quick note of gratitude for the wheelhouse. He's been an out-of-state Mariners fan for over a decade, and the podcast has really helped him to reconnect with the team." And he is hoping that we are enjoying making this podcast as much as he has enjoyed listening to it. And, James, I think we can certainly say that we are. And he does have a question. He's taking advantage of his airtime here. He's curious, Jerry, when we talk about pitchers and their stuff, right? What does it mean when we say, oh, he's got good stuff? What does that mean? Probably means he's a big leaguer. You know? <laughs> I mean, they all, have, they all have good stuff. But the, to, as a major league pitcher... There, and James Paxson's a great example. Very, very few major league pitchers can go out there and outstuff a major league lineup. So it, it's it's firmer velocity, it's nasty movement, it's late break on a on a breaking ball, it's an out pitch that's really hard to solve. And sometimes it's it's clear to the naked eye. You know, it's a it's it's Edwin Diaz slider. And sometimes it's more subtle and tougher to pick up on. It's Nick Vincent's cutter. And, you know, the, the, the great stuff guy is generally the top of the rotation starters, the Justin Verlanders, the Felix Hernandez, that, you know, that ilk of player. Or sometimes you'll see references or you'll hear references to great stuff guys that don't quite get over the hump. It's the guy who has great physical stuff, may throw in the mid-90s, can really make the ball move, has a nasty breaking ball but struggles to find the third pitch, really struggles with command, the nuances of pitching. You know, Tom Seaver. There we go. I had (laughs) to say it. The Jerry DePoto podcast featuring the Tom Seaver (laughs) reference of the day. (laughs) The Tom Seaver reference of the day. (laughs) He did. He said, once upon a time, Tom Seaver said, in print, I might add, uh, in the the great book, The Art of Pitching by Tom Seaver, if you get the the itch. Do you have a signed copy? I I don't have a signed copy, but I do have a copy in my office. That's disappointing. Yeah, I, I, I'll send it out. For, <laughs> so we, we we do have we do have uh, a, the with pitchers you have fastball velocity, fastball command, 
or location and fastball movement. And, you know, Tom Seaver once said that you're never or rarely going to have all three of those on a given day if you have 35 starts in a season because that was a thing when, when right, yeah. Tom Seaver was doing his. But five times in 35, you might have all three. You know, which of those three elements would you like to have most of all every day? Now, for the most part, pitchers at this level in 2018 have velocity. So it comes down to movement and command. Command rules the day. You know, if, if you can command the ball and, and, and place it where you want to place it, the greatest hitters have a tough time doing anything with it. And great stuff pitchers or, or guys who have great physical stuff can't always solve major league hitters because they can't locate the ball in, in, in the ways like, like the all-time greats, Tom Seaver, can do. <laughs> Or did. And, you know, we are fortunate enough to have a number of guys who might not be considered super stuffy type pitchers, uh, but they have great command of their pitches. And and that allows you to pitch at a very high level in this league. I'll follow that up with a quote from Oral Hershiser. Now, no Tom Seaver, obviously. But, but, he but was certainly o- no slouch. But yeah. he was okay, right? It was one of my all-time favorite pitching quotes. He said along the lines of, I've never heard a pitcher come back to the dugout and say, man, did I get hit around today and I had great command. <laughs> but he said plenty of times I've heard a pitcher come back and say, I had great stuff today, but man, did I get hit around. That's right. I mean, this is the difference, right? It's a huge difference. Uh, oftentimes, you would, I would come back and I would say, how did he hit that pitch? And the, and the answer was, you didn't throw it in a good spot. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's all about the location. It's real estate. Sure. Right? It's, a, if it's location, location, location. The other elements of pitches – you know, we'll sit here and we'll salivate when a, when a pitcher can hit 98. We will salivate when we see that nasty sinking action on a fastball. We love the, the violent breaking ball. But at the end of the day, if the violent breaking ball lands in the middle of the plate and is deposited 400 feet away, it's not a great pitch. And, but, it, but it appeals to the eye. So when we talk about stuffy pitchers, we are talking about the guys who can really light up a radar gun, who can really, I guess, dazzle you with the, with the breaking ball action. And sometimes they wind up being the best pitchers in the league, like a Verlander or Garrett Cole. Sometimes they wind up being – or James Paxton. And sometimes they wind up being the guy who, boy, you remember so-and-so? How did he not make it? And and usually the answer to that question is he didn't have good location. Well, James, we appreciate the handwritten card. Uh, Colin is currently finding a frame to fit this. We'll put this up in Colin's uh, cubicle back near the mop closet. We'll frame it with each hero's bat. Yes, exactly. It'll go with all of that. So good stuff, James. Seriously, thank you. That was very awesome of you. Uh, One more quick question for you, Jerry, as uh, we get to some people who went the digital route, thewheelhouseandmariners.com. Brian wants to know, Jerry, your funniest story regarding a brawl or dust-up that you were involved in, or at least a witness to? I mean, were you running stride for stride from the bullpen along with another Jerry DePoto and you guys just chirping the whole way, or did you actually get into it? Oh, there's when you play for long enough, you do get into them. Uh, maybe my favorite is, uh, and only because there were multiple members of the Mariner family involved on this given day. So this Did was, you beat up Blowers? Uh, no, but that would have been oh, awesome. That would have been the yeah. best. <laughs> No, in, th- in this particular case, we I was playing for the New York Mets, and uh, this is uh, circa mid-1990s, I believe it was 1995. And uh, the, with the 1995 Mets, we had a utility infielder who's now the bench coach for the Washington Nationals, formerly our bench coach here with the Mariners, Tim Bogart. We had a, uh, a starting pitcher who is currently one of our 
pitching coaches in the minor leagues, Pete Harnish, who is a, an organizational pitching coach here with the M's. We were playing a game with the Chicago Cubs where the catcher was none other than our manager, Scott Service. And I, I happened to have been a relief pitcher with the Mets at the time. And we had the late Kevin Foster, tragic early death for Kevin Foster, was pitching against Pete Harnish that day. And uh, Pete Harnish, uh, Pete Harnish is, lo and behold, Pete hits a guy. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pete, Pete hits a guy. And, uh, and he comes up, very close relationship with Scott Service. The two played with the Houston Astros prior to moving on to the Mets and the Cubs and, uh, and remain friends to this day. We all work together. We've actually shown footage of this brawl in our clubhouse, much to the amusement of our players. They, they've enjoyed seeing the, the names run around on the field. But uh, Pete came to the box and in his best, you know, hardcore New York accent said, uh, turned around to Scott and, and said, dude, this guy hits me, I'm coming after you. And, and Scott said, shut up. Pete got back in the box. Kevin Foster threw one inside on him. Keep, Pete turned around, lifted Scott's mask off, and slapped him across the face. <laughs> and then, and then, lo and behold, a brawl for the ages busted out. With and it was it was pretty heavy. Uh, running all over the field, people it scattered, small little fights here and there, and and everybody got involved. My favorite moment of the the brawl, other than clearly Pete slapping Scott sure. across the chops, was was we had a pitcher who wound up going on, a relief pitcher with the Mets, who was on the DL at the time, who wound up going on to have a very productive major league career by the name of Paul Bird. And uh, Birdie came running out of the clubhouse where DL guys sit. He is not allowed on the field for any instance. So the brawl, he's not allowed to take part. And Birdie, who's as nice a guy as you'll ever meet and, and just a super human being, runs out and just grabs a body off of the pile. And he's, he wraps up a body, none other than the then manager of the Chicago Cubs, Jim Riggleman, uh, also an association with, with former Mariner, Mariner fame, and uh, wraps up Jim Riggleman, pulls him off the pile. This, this brawl goes on, spots, fights, punches. And then afterward, we're all sitting in the clubhouse licking our wounds. And, and Paul came walking over and, and sat down next to me. And, and he said, should I write a letter of apology to Jim Riggleman? I, I feel really bad that I, that I went out there and grabbed him. I'm not supposed to do that, right? He's the manager. And I, and I said, Birdie, let it go. It's a fight. It happens. And he wrote Jim Riggleman a letter of apology. It happened to get into my hands. We later find Paul Bird in our kangaroo court uh, for writing said letter. And, <laughs> for being a gentleman. Yeah, and, and now, we, yes, for doing the right thing. Right. We, we find him in the kangaroo court. But so many of the guys that were involved in that fight on the field that day wound up being in our major league clubhouse in 2016, 2017 in spring training. So finally somebody was able to pull up video footage of this brawl with all the, the guys running around and our players got a, got a kick out of it watching, you know, watching the manager get slapped in the face by the pitching coach <laughs> who's now sitting next to him and, and all hell breaking loose. But it was a lot of fun. Brian, you asked the right question. That is fantastic. Well, we'll wrap this up with a quick around the horn. Uh, for those catching this uh, right now, Friday, prior to Game 1 against the Angels, we've got a ton of big stuff coming as uh, we begin this weekend series. Star Wars night tonight. 
90s night tomorrow, Little League Day on Sunday. Next homestand begins on Tuesday, May 15th. Some special events coming, Mariners Blanket Hoodie Night on Friday, the 18th of May. The Felix Fernandez Infield Grass Bobblehead Night, uh, Camden Finney's creation, so I hear. Uh, that is on Saturday, May 19th, and this is a bobblehead jerry with real grass. Have you seen this? I can't wait to get one, just yeah. so you know. Yeah. Uh, You're all over this? Are you? Do you have a fairly extensive bobblehead collection? I don't have a fairly extensive bobblehead collection, maybe four or five. That's it? But the, the attraction of a bobblehead with Gra- real grass. <laughs> sure. Right. Why wouldn't I this like This is one that? of a kind. And then, of course, on uh, Sunday, May 20th, Second Chance Mother's Day, a Mariner's Totes for all moms. So good stuff there. Jerry, this has been a blast as always. Huge, huge weekend beginning uh, tonight, Friday night, against the Angels. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun. All right. Always fun. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.